Hollow Windows and Doors of Wisconsin has six lines to fit your style and financing to fit any budget. Through November 30th, choose 12 months, no payments and no interest, plus 20% off installation. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. During yesterday's program, we did a segment about the parents of the 15-year-old Michigan school shooter who earlier this week walked into the school armed with a 9mm pistol and proceeded to um, shoot and kill four individuals, four students, and also shoot others as well. So we, we talked about you know what the responsibilities of mom and dad are. Now, a lot of times in this program, when you have kids that go out and do really, really terrible things, that's one of the questions we ask. Why aren't mom and dad, dad held accountable? When you have a 14-year-old or a 13-year-old who's out at 2 o'clock in the morning stealing cars um, at a hotel by Mayfair Shopping Center, sees a woman who confronts him, then grabs her, pulls her out of the car, and runs over her, kills her, you know, where are the parents? You know, and we ask that question, and parents are almost never held responsible. Well, that changed today because the district attorney in Michigan has just issued four charges of involuntary manslaughter against the parents of the 15-year-old. His name is Ethan Crumley. Their names are James and Jennifer Crumley. Four counts of involuntary manslaughter um, in connection with the deaths of the four people. For people who want to figure out manslaughter means uh, that there wasn't an intention of killing somebody, but due to their careless or reckless actions, that contributed to the death of another human being. So the theory the prosecution is going to be using is the parents were so reckless with regard to how they handled their son and how they handled their son's access to firearms that they should be held liable. All right. Now, if you want to see a, a detailed description of this, and you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I've got a link to the, the story that really has the basis for the charges behind it. But here's a, essentially what happened. We, we all know that the 15-year-old shows up at school. He's armed with a handgun. He's got uh, several magazines, and he starts systematically walking through the school, shooting and, and killing people. We know that the gun had been purchased. The shooting occurred, what, Monday? We know the gun had been purchased on Friday, Black Friday, by, by the dad. So the dad had purchased the gun. There are pictures that are on Instagram and stuff showing that the 15-year-old was, in fact, in possession of the gun over the weekend. So 15-year-old's got the gun. Dad has just purchased it. Okay, so here... That in and of itself doesn't mean that you hold the parents responsible. But here's what they say. And this is the background. On November 21st, which was, you know, what, slightly a week before the shooting, a teacher sees the kid, Ethan Crumley, researching ammunition in class. 
Okay, the teen's parents were called, so they call mom and dad of the year, and they email them. So they see the kids researching ammunition in class. So the parents are called and emailed, but they don't respond to school officials. They don't respond to the email. They don't answer the call. According to the prosecutor, though, after being notified of this, mom, that would be Jennifer Crumley, texts her son about the incident, says, Laugh out loud. I'm not mad at you. You have to learn not to get caught. Okay. The morning of the shooting, Ethan Crumley, that's the 15-year-old, his teacher sees a note on his desk which alarms her. The note was a drawing of a semi-automatic handgun pointing at the words, The thoughts won't stop. Help me. In another section of the note, there is a drawing of a bullet with the following words above the bullet, blood everywhere. Between the drawing of the gun and the bullet is the drawing of a person who appears to have been shot twice and bleeding. Below that figure is a drawing of a laughing emoji. Further down the drawing are the words, my life is useless, and to the right of that are the words, the world is dead. Okay, so this is the same kid that a week before the shooting is caught in class researching ammunition. The parents are told, and their reaction is, well, next time don't get caught. On Friday, they they go out, they, they buy a gun and give the kid access to the gun. So the day of the shooting, he's sitting in class with all these different drawings. All right, so the teacher finds these drawings. Okay, they remove him from the classroom, and they call the parents to the school. So mom and dad show up at the school. By the time a counselor had obtained the drawing, the teen had allegedly altered it. All right. At the meeting, mom and dad were shown the drawing and were advised that they were required to get their son into counseling within 48 hours. James and Jennifer, this is mom and dad, failed to ask their son if he had his gun with him, where the gun was located, failed to inspect his backpack for the presence of the gun which he had with him. The parents left the school and Ethan was returned to class, likely with the gun in his backpack. He was returned to class. He's sitting in the classroom drawing pictures of mass carnage, and after a meeting with the parents, they send him back to class, which raises all sorts of issues. But mom and dad didn't mention the gun at all. Mom and dad, apparently the gun was not locked up. It was an easy access for the kid. Mom and dad, despite knowing the fact that the kid was researching ammunition a week beforehand, nevertheless purchased the gun, didn't have the gun locked up, didn't have it out of his reach, anything. Once the news of the shooting at the school broke, um, Jennifer, that's mom, texted her son, Ethan, don't do it. Then they called 911 to report that the gun was missing from their house and they believed that their son may be the shooter. And it was. Authorities determined that the semi-automatic handgun that dad had purchased on Friday was stored unlocked in a drawer in his bedroom. 
So there was no gun safe, no nothing. It was readily accessible to the troubled 15-year-old. The prosecutor says these charges are intended to hold the individuals who contributed to this tragedy accountable and also send a message that gun owners have a responsibility. When they fail to uphold that responsibility, there are serious criminal consequences. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This rarely happens, that the, the parents or the firearm owners are held accountable. Generally speaking, if you see charges like this, it will be where you have somebody that leaves the gun unattended and the six-year-old kid finds it and and shoots his four-year-old brother. I mean, sometimes you'll have that story. So this is different. You clearly have a troubled kid. Everybody knows that this kid is troubled. All right, his he, he's researching ammunition at school, and the mom's reaction is, first of all, we'll laugh out loud, don't get caught next time, you're not in trouble. Then a couple days after that, they buy a handgun that the kid has access to, and then when they get whistled in the day of the shooting, told that the kid that's making these drawings indicating that he's capable of mass murder, nobody thinks to check about the gun, nobody wonders where that gun is until after the news of the shooting breaks. Okay, 855-616-1620. I think these parents deserve anything and everything the criminal justice system can do to them. Is it unfair and unreasonable to bring charges against mom or dad? 855-616-1620. We discuss. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. Now, a number of people are texting in, raising a legitimate question as well about about the, the school officials. You know what? Before, okay, after the, the kid is found in in a classroom drawing pictures suggesting he's he's inclined for for mass murder why why do you send him back why don't you send him home and decide what you're going to do instead of just telling mom and dad the parents of the year well you need to get him into counseling and within 48 hours and it's an i think that's a fair question another fair question is why doesn't somebody look in the kid's backpack and and you know this is all kind of related that you know mom and dad apparently didn't volunteer the fact that oh we bought a handgun the other day and we don't know where that handgun is um and i guess didn't go home after this meeting and check to see if the handgun which was stored unlocked in dad's drawer was was in fact gone it was only after they heard of the shooting and i, I do think it's fair to ask school officials what, why did you send the kid back to class? Why didn't somebody look in the kid's backpack or something like, like that? And again, I don't believe mom and dad alerted the fact that, hey, we have just bought a gun and the kid was playing with it all over the weekend. So I, I don't think school officials are criminally liable, but I do think that there's a lot of questions as to why why you just allow this whole thing to happen. But that doesn't change the dynamic with mom and dad here. And this isn't just a factor of, hey, we have a gun. We have no evidence at all, no indication that the kid is, is a crazed maniac. And that we, yes, we have a gun, but it's in a gun safe and it's locked up. And it never occurred to us that he might be have access to to have the key. That's not what happened here. They were on notice that the kid was troubled. They got a gun, brought it into the house a couple days earlier, and they left it unlocked with easy access to the kid and never checked up on it. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Bob in Greenfield. Hi, Bob. Hi, Jeff. Um, I I, uh, agree with them charging the parents, but I'm sure the parents could never you know, even if they were oblivious to reality, they never could have imagined this happening. 
um, this will be a, a message to all gun o- owners to be more careful with their weapons. But I don't know if they should get um, convicted on manslaughter. I mean, it's just something that they obviously had no idea that this could happen. But they well, I don't know. Do you, do you think they have no idea? I guess, see, that that's what manslaughter is all about, Bob. It's, it's the idea that you're... Did, did you behave in such a reckless fashion that that somebody's death occurred? And I, I guess I, I look at this and say, with all the red flags involving the kid, who in their right mind brings a gun into the household and then just kind of leaves it lying around and, and doesn't check that the kid might have taken it to school? I guess that's that's where... I start to wonder. It's not like I said. It's not like the kid, you know, broke into a gun safe and, and stole something. You you clearly knew it was a troubled kid. Yeah, and I guess as far as like the the school, I I don't think you know. I guess they could have perhaps checked his uh, bag, and maybe they should have, or they could have sent him home. But I'm sure they they were kind of walking on eggshells on what they can do. I mean, obviously. The parents had a a totally bad attitude about it, but I I just can't imagine they had any inkling that this would have happened or they would have definitely secured the weapon. So I think they should be charged, but maybe found guilty on a lesser charge. Okay. Well, thanks. I mean, again, that's the argument. There's not... There's not too many lesser charges that are there. I mean, the, the theory, and it's an aggressive theory by the prosecutors, but the theory that they're going to argue is that with all the facts and circumstances known to the parents, the parents' behavior was was reckless, and it was reckless to a degree that they should have some responsibility based on, on what the kid did. And I guess I, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm trying to, to think about this. And again, I, it's like, all right, you... The, the kid is caught in school researching ammunition. Mom and dad are notified, and mom and dad's reaction isn't to respond to the school, but it's to tell the kid, well, don't get caught next time. Okay? Instead of saying, why were you researching ammunition? Then mom and dad go out and buy a gun. All right, no problem with buying a gun. They've got, they've each got minor criminal records, but nothing that would stop them from being able to legally purchase a firearm. So you buy the gun, but against this backdrop, who in their right mind doesn't take steps to secure the gun? And they didn't secure the gun. And then once you get called into school and you're told that the, the school is your, your kid is like writing notes that suggest he's about to become a mass murderer. Apparently, nobody thinks to look to see where is your gun? You know, what has happened to this gun that you've just brought into the house? Nobody at least that's the best case scenario is that nobody looks to see um i maybe they did and they didn't mention anything i'm going to give the parents the benefit of the doubt but this is so negligent and so irresponsible that it seems to me there is responsibility here mary in waukesha mary you're on wtmj hi there jeff i do agree with everything you're saying about responsibility and negligence to me the the thing that you said about when the mother, after she first heard something on the news and called or texted her son and said, don't do it. Yeah. I think that's very telling about there was more going on in her mind. Yeah. Right. About her son than maybe we're thinking about. Right. I, I, that's chilling to me. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, yeah, he, at, at, once news of a shooting at the school broke. She texts the son and said, Ethan, don't do it. But that's, you're right. There, there must have been 
I agree with you. There, there must have been all sorts of indications. And then after that, the dad calls 911 to say a gun was missing from his house. Now, I mean, I don't know about you, Mary, but if if I had been whistled in that morning and had one of these meetings with my kid where they're saying, hey, your kid is writing these notes indicating he's thinking about a mass murder situation. And I knew that I had just purchased a gun. I don't know about you, but my first step would have been to think, OK, where is that gun? What has happened to it? I'm not going to wait till I find reports that there's a mass shooting before I check to see what I've done with my gun and what's been done with my gun. At least that's me. Absolutely. And I think that they kind of tried to laugh off previous yeah. drawings or whatever you had in your news story in the beginning. Ammunition. He I was researching ammunition. Yes, that's right. Um, and kind of laugh that off. I, um, I don't know. It's it's a whole different type of parenting than what I'm... Right, right. well, exa- right. Th- exactly. No, no, thanks for calling. Like I say, there, there's a lot of, again, blame to go around here, and I, I do think it's fair to ask school officials, you send him back into the classroom, but did, didn't somebody look in the kid's backpack? And that's the theory. The theory is he, he had this gun and all this ammunition in in the backpack. I, I, I would have... I mean, the idea of just returning him to class. Now, somebody texted me and said, well, you know, they, they the parents refused to take him back home. I don't know if that's true. That's not, at least in the stories I have about the criminal complaint. But regardless, if you're going to, first of all, I, no way in the world I would have let this kid back into class that day. It would have been like, you're writing these notes. You're, you're, you're not coming. We're suspending you, period, right now on the spot. And you're not coming back until we've had a counselor and assessment of things like that. But even if you don't do that, I, I would have at least been looking at the kid's backpack, but that's the school officials. But that's that's a secondary sort of thing. Maybe you would have ended up seeing the gun. I, I lay most of this blame on, again, at the feet of the father and mother for not saying, oh, by the way, we don't know where this gun that we purchased on Friday is for the kid. John in Burlington. John, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Thanks Hi, John. for taking my call. Sure. I wasn't going to call in. I listened to a couple of calls, and I, I, I do agree for the most part, but... Uh, the fact that we do have to put this on the teachers is actually, I think, in my opinion, a little bit wrong because we're dealing with pure stupidity here. Yeah. And the parents should be accountable. This is 100 percent in how they brought up their kid. Yeah, this is and this this is one of the, this was clearly preventable. I mean, sometimes there's these school shootings and you look back in retrospect and you say, OK, well, they could have done this. This was the warning sign. That was the warning sign. This th- these were just huge red flags here. And I guess I just can't get over it. buying the gun and bringing it into the house in the first place when you know that this you're obviously dealing with a troubled kid and then bringing the gun in and giving the kid access to it. It's just mind boggling to me, John. I agree. Yeah. yeah. And that, and I've been having a lot of conversations about this and this is the only way things would get fixed in a nutshell with a lot of problems is hold more parents responsible for kids that are underage, yeah. even for different circumstances. Yeah. More parents need to be held responsible. Yeah, thanks. People are asking what the maximum penalty is. I took a quick look at the Michigan statutes because every state has different statutes. I, I think it's 15 years a count. That's the, so they're charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter, um, which is, is in connection with the four people who were killed. So their maximum exposure, at least the way I, I read it, I think it's 60 years. Now, they're, they're probably not going to get 60 years if, if they get convicted, but this is an attempt to hold them responsible. And under all these facts and circumstances, I applaud the district attorney. 
It might be a little bit aggressive. Don't know if they'll be able to succeed because mom and dad are going to say, well, we had no idea he had the gun. But at the same time, I do think, you know, along with the right to bear arms, that Second Amendment, somebody made this point in one of our texts, there's a responsibility. You've got to be a responsible gun owner. And that means you, you keep guns out of the hands of children, particularly when you have every reason to believe that your child is troubled. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. WTMJ, Good Karma Brands, and the United Way of Greater Milwaukee and Waukesha County are asking for your help to support the families directly affected by the tragic incident at the Waukesha Christmas Parade. Please, consider donating to the United for Waukesha Community Fund. If you'd like to help, text the word FUND, F-U-N-D, to the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 855-616-1620. Through Saturday, each donation will be matched by the Foch family, foundation up to one million dollars together we are all part of the home team a very very worthwhile cause all right as long as we are talking about the the waukesha christmas parade massacre and and that's what it was after not commenting on this for the better part of two weeks other than issuing a statement saying okay my office screwed up john chisholm appeared via Zoom call in front of a county board committee to explain what what had happened. And his, well, the best way I could describe this is he threw a young assistant district attorney under the bus. And and there's just no other way to describe it. He said, here's the deal. This was screwed up. I had a young assistant district attorney who showed up here and, you know, she just... She, she didn't have access to this. She was busy. She was involved in this trial, et cetera, et cetera. And so she looked and she saw that the guy has been released on a $500 bail. So she just thought, we'll double it and, you know, make it a $1,000 bail. And, and that's it. And just, it was just, she was just too busy. It was a mistake. Boom. We have thrown her under the bus. And his basic point is, well, there's nothing really to see here beyond that. Uh, the chief judge, um, her, her, Action is to take the court commissioner who set the ridiculously low bail, and he has not been fired, but he has now been transferred. So they're going to send him over to juvenile court, where um, <laughs> if he ends up in juvenile court, he'll have the chance to release juvenile delinquents on on very very low or or no sort of bail as well. But it's just it's being passed off as a mistake, and we're blaming a, a young prosecutor who was just too busy and she wasn't paying attention and she missed these facts. Well. I, I under, I understand that this, in fact, what was a mistake, and that's all well and good. But the response from the district attorney is in no way satisfactory because it ignores the fundamental problem. This Daryl Brooks Jr. and his release was not an aberration. By by that I mean this is the type of stuff. That happens on a daily basis in Milwaukee County, 
where you have, first of all, matters that are referred to the district attorney's office from the police, and they, they, they don't even get to the point where they're charged. They're no process. The, 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 the district attorney's office decides what we're going to do is we're going to try to avoid charging people with crimes where they might have to go to jail. So you, you have that going on. Then when they do get these situations where they end up charging people with crimes, and if you follow me on Twitter, at Jeff Wagner 620 I, over the last week or so, I, I've sent you links to various stories and reports that have been doing this. It's just flown under the radar screen where you have people who are out on, on bail or awaiting charges who commit some other offense, and then effectively nothing happens to them. They're just turned loose again to continue to commit more and more crimes. It's particularly a problem when it comes to domestic assault, uh, domestic abuse cases. I I was highlighting a case yesterday. There's a 23-year-old guy who has a lengthy criminal record, and he was awaiting charges for various things, and he's got a no-contact order with his old girlfriend. He, He he shows up at the girlfriend's house. He's violated all this bail. There ends up being a shooting. In this case, you know, he won't leave and he ends up getting shot. And he's now been charged with all these various bail offenses. But it's another situation where people who are out on bail continue to violate the law and they're not revoked. To me, this is a one strike and you're out deal. If you make bail, you got charged with criminal things, you make bail, and then you go out and you violate those conditions of the bail, you should be in jail. You've demonstrated that you cannot comply with the conditions of your bail, and yet that's not what they do in Milwaukee County. They go out of their way to not hold people accountable, and then, you know, you get to go out to the East Coast and West Coast and go to these fancy balls, and you get, you know, rewarded for, hey, you know, we're not incarcerating people. In Milwaukee County, the rate of crime is higher than it is nationwide, and it's gotten dramatically worse over the last five years. In particular, those times that John Chisholm's catch and release policies have have kicked in. So is the Brooks case a, a mistake? Absolutely. Of course it is. Everybody agrees with that. But if the lesson of the Brooks case is just to say nothing to see here, this was some overworked young assistant district attorney who screwed up, boom, we're running over her with the bus, that's not the takeaway. This is a systematic problem, and it's a problem that was put in place by the current district attorney who back in 2007 said, I know this is going to happen. I know because of my policies that somebody is out on bail or pretrial release or diversion, and they're going to go out and kill somebody. Well, all right, that's actually been happening, whether it's killing somebody or committing other crimes, but it's never gotten the attention that this is getting. And I know there's some people out there and some apologists for the, the system and for John who are saying, well, you know, you, you, you shouldn't, we shouldn't use this instance as a, as a way of faulting what's going on. Yes, we should, because this stuff has been going on for the longest time. People's lives are being put at risk because we have this catch-and-release, politically correct system where we essentially reward prosecutors for finding ways not to hold people responsible. And in the Waukesha case, you had dozens and dozens and dozens of people who were injured. You have six people who are dead. You know, as a result of that, but but that's not the only case of this. It, it might be the most extreme example of it, but it is not a unique case. 
people being released on ridiculously low bails, going out and committing crimes, and then being sent back again on bail, continued on bail, is is absolutely crazy. Now, I fully agree that we need to take a whole look at the bail laws because, like I say, I'm a creature of the federal system, and in the federal system, bail, you look at two things. You look at, first of all, flight risk, and secondly, danger to the community. Now, the problem is, even if you change the laws to really make that a, a factor, you, you've got district attorneys like John Chisholm who don't want to lock people up, and, and they wouldn't use it anyways. I mean, they, they, even if you had that available, say, hey, look, this person is a danger to the community. We don't think he should be released on bail, period. Well, you, you still have to have prosecutors that request that, and when the philosophy of a particular district attorney is, no, I want to do everything we can not to hold people in custody, well, you're, you're not going to use that anyways. This is the logical this is the logical ramification of what we have been doing for a long time. It has been a greatly undercovered story, and now you, you see this. And, I mean, I, I, I just challenge the media. Go back and look look at just the cases we've reported over the course of the last, let's say, four years with the number of people who have committed crimes who have been out on bail while they've done it. And then look what happens. Even after they violate their conditions of the bail and commit a crime, they're released on bail again. If anything good can come from this horrible story that is the monster Daryl Brooks, hopefully it will be that we have a system that is not working. We're not going to just slough it off on some new assistant district attorney who was overworked and made a mistake. Yes, she made a mistake. That That's fine. But that's not what the underlying problem is. We've got a more fundamental problem with putting dangerous people back out on the street over and over again. And if the current district attorney won't do it, it's time for a new district attorney to come in and start concerning himself with not trying to appease the politically correct elements of the community, but rather dealing with public safety. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. One more time this week, they're back. Cocoa and candy cane cream puffs at the Wisconsin State Fair. They're making a return for one weekend only. That is next weekend. drive through pickup is available December 9th through 12th, so pre-order now at statefaircreampuffs.com and save. Did you know you can freeze your cream puffs as well? So you can order extra to enjoy all winter long. How cool is that? Limited edition cocoa and candy cane cream puffs at the Wisconsin State Fair Park. Get more info at statefaircreampuffs.com and for official contest rules, visit WTMJ.com. Now you might say to me, Jeff, what are you talking about? Contest. Well, as I've been doing all week, I have a six-pack of cream puffs to give away for this State Fair special winter cream puff offer. Let us give it to caller number 10. Caller number 10 at 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Caller number 10 wins a six-pack of cream puffs. Now, I don't know if they're cocoa or whether they're candy cane or whether there's some combination thereof, but I know they're cream puffs, and I know they're going to be pretty darn good. So check it out. Caller number 10. And thanks to the good folks at the State Fair um, for this arrangement. Hope you enjoy it quite a bit. All right. Yesterday, um, we went out to um, dinner with some friends, came back, and my wife had recorded this, and she said, Jeff, you've got to watch this. So I I, I watched the Alec Baldwin interview. Now, I, I admit that... I have no use for Alec Baldwin. I, I find him to be a pompous windbag. And I, 
He's, of course, he, this is his statement. He's sitting down with George Stephanopoulos, and they're talking about, you know, the situation where Alec Baldwin, you know, ended up inadvertently shooting and killing the cinematographer on this low-budget film that, that he was doing. Now, I want to be real clear. Nobody, Alec Baldwin did not intend to kill anybody. I, I think that's very, very clear. This was an accident as far as an accidental shooting. There is some negligence. I mean, somebody handed Alec Baldwin a gun on a movie set that had a live round in it, and that's just absolutely inexcusable. And the investigation is going to focus on that. I don't think Alec Baldwin has any sort of criminal liability or anything like that. He, he just, you know, he was given the gun, he's practicing his quick draw, and, and the gun ends up going off. Having said that, I, I watched this, and the lack of responsibility was really just... It it was just amazing to me because now the story that Alec Baldwin is telling is that he did not pull the the trigger, um, which I think a lot of people are skeptical about. His story is he let go of the hammer on the gun, you know, where you you cock it. He said he let go of the hammer of the gun and the gun went off. Um, I I think there's a lot of firearm experts who are skeptical of this. Um, Others say, well, I I guess it's it's possible, but it, it wasn't. Alec Baldwin, whether he let go of the hammer of the gun or he pulled the trigger, he, he inadvertently caused the gun to, to go off. And again, I'm not suggesting that there's any sort of criminal liability here, but for, for Alec Baldwin to say, well, there, you know, he, he's, he's not to blame, nothing he could have done, he's certainly not criminally liable or anything like that. But I, I think there's a lot of people that played roles in this, and that this Alec Baldwin. Well, this is not. It's not. It's not on me. It's. It's not on me. He's got a legitimate point. He should not have been given a, a loaded gun, and I don't think that he did anything that was reckless with the gun in that regard. But this idea that oh, nothing to see here. And again, these periodic, what I struck me as being crocodile tears, it was kind of like, oh, for, for goodness sakes, this is a tragedy. Somebody is dead. He doesn't deserve to be criminally charged. He will be as part of the production company. He'll be sued by it. But the interview, I thought, was just way, way, way over the top. And this is one of the situations where I wish it was me instead of George Stephanopoulos doing the interviews, because I, I guarantee you there would have been some more questions that would have been asked regarding the, this discharge and the letting loose of the hammer and things like that. But that didn't fit in with the media template. In any event, Alec Baldwin says nothing to see here. Um, he says well, he's not sure he wants to act again, but apparently he's starting to film another movie relatively soon. Back with more in just a minute. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Mike Spaulding, I am convinced that there are two types of people in the world. And I was wondering which one of those types are you. There's two types. The people that push the button constantly and the people that don't. But by that I mean, okay, my, my wife accomplished, lovely, the night, one of the nicest people that you will ever meet, right? You know Fran, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Yes, yes, very nice. But she is one of those people that, that pushes the button. If you've got something mechanical and, you know, you're, you're supposed to push the button once to, to do something, all right, 
She'll push it once, and then if it doesn't do exactly what she wants it to do, she keeps punching it over and over again. And many of her friends are like that. And sometimes when they get together, it's like, okay, this isn't working. Here, I'm going to push the same button. And so what ends up happening is it, it just the thing gets totally and completely screwed up. And like For example, last night, come to bed. We've got one of those sleep number beds. Mm-hmm. And the, the mattress is like really, really firm. And she says, yeah, I, she says, I, I just I, I did something with this, and that this, the thing isn't working. And, and she's like been punching the button. On the on the sleep number thing, and I, I'm I'm looking. It took me about 15 minutes because after you've punched it the first time, you've now got it off onto some weird, some other weird setting, and then punching it repeatedly over and over again isn't. Not only is it not solving the problem, it's making it worse because now you're changing all these other settings, and it's kind of like okay, just happened a couple weeks ago. She's got an eye watch, and she was actually out. We were out with like friends of ours, and. So something happened with the iWatch, and she starts pushing this button. Next thing we know, the thing is upside down. You can't enter the password. So her friend Patty says, here, let me take a look at it. And she starts pushing the button. And, and it's just, I, I don't have an iWatch. I couldn't save this one. They go into, you take it into the Apple store, and the guy looks at it in 10 seconds and says, well, yeah, here's, here's why. Because when you kept pushing the button, you got it off this setting onto this one. And next thing you know, you got it reversed on the wrists, and it's upside down, and it's like, I, I just I guess I don't understand because for me, if you push that button the first time and it doesn't work, rather than just pushing it over and over again, you want to take a step back and figure out what is going on. Okay, so do you push the button? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, oh, I 100 <laughs> percent know what you're talking about. I am a not push the button person. I I will push it if I push it once doesn't work. I will try it again and like really focus all of my energy to make sure my finger pushes it correctly. But after that, right, no, right, yeah, and and then you then you think okay, are the batteries maybe worn mm-hmm. out or something? But but no, it, it's obviously you push the button. It doesn't matter what electronic device it is, and a lot of times it, it just. When you start pushing it over and over again, all you're doing is getting it into some like weird avenue. I don't even know. I, I had no idea on this particular remote for the sleep number bed. I have no idea where we were. I mean, it was just in some like I, it was like doing stuff that I, I have no idea features that we don't have on the mattress and things like that. I have no idea how it got there other than if you push the button eight or ten times, you start to go down this rabbit hole. And and ultimately with this, when I was able to get it back. but it's, it is it's like one o'clock in the morning and i'm sitting there like look because it's become a quest i'm kind of looking at this figuring okay i, I should be able to figure this out and i was the i watch i was completely lost on i do voluntary it work for my parents because they do not live by us so everything we have to do is over the phone and they are both very much continued to push the button person or if it's the laptop and it freezes like should i close the top and then open like they they'll, they'll try every single thing to try and reboot it except for like waiting for a couple of minutes yeah. holding on like they're the worst at it and i keep telling them right yeah. Th- right that, yeah that that's exactly it you you got okay the tv remotes are are like that and i know i mean it is okay so if you got you've got let's say you've got the cable tv thing for those of us who still have cable TV, and then you've got you know your, your regular smart TV, so you've got a couple you've got a couple different remotes. For example, like if I want to watch streaming stuff, I use the one remote mm-hmm. through the TV. If I want to watch cable stuff, I, I use the other remote. Now maybe there's ways you can put it all together. I don't do that, but yeah, you have to know what you're doing because if you take this remote and you just start pressing yeah. buttons, pretty soon 
you're just you're just history. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Then you need Spectrum to come over because right. there's no saving you after well, you're there. Well, that yet. was it with France iWatch. I mean, it was I had I I said, well, let me see if I can figure this out. And I don't have an iWatch, so I, I had no clue. And then she was explaining to me that the guy said, yeah, somehow when you kept pushing this button, you got it from a left wrist to a right wrist. So that's why the thing was upside down. And you push this other button and you deactivated the the password feature. And I'm mean, like deactivated. It. I have no idea it has any of this stuff, which is all the reason not to push the button. Yeah, absolutely. So the software we use to edit audio in the newsrooms, a little behind the scenes, we have people that we work with who are button pushers. <laughs> and, you know, the, the software is very, it's older, it's finicky. Yeah. And so if you're just clicking audio and moving everything around, all of a sudden your whole workspace is going to be a disaster. Right. Uh, and that happens about once a week. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I'm, thank you. I'm getting swamped with text here. 855-616-1620. We have a little bit of fun here. we got some other serious stuff. But but it is, I, I do believe, you know, we hear, and I, I'm not trying to be sexist about this because this could be, you know, it could be a, a man thing versus a woman thing, or it could just be individual personality types. But I really do believe that there are two types of people in the world. There are the people that that push the buttons repeatedly, and there are those of us that um, don't. 855-616-1620. Do you know what I'm talking about? And are you are, are you a button pusher or no? Here's a text. Jeff, my gosh, I can't stop laughing at the button pushing. I am guilty of this. I know it. Um, Jeff, it's like people that punch the elevator button over and over again. It's not going to come any faster um <laughs> yeah that's right jeff the reason why it didn't work after she pushed the button a million times was that she didn't um sweat at it too you know th- this kind of always works just re- relax let you let the husband do it um 855-616-1620 jeff pilots are split by those two types of personalities as well i keep telling some of my coworkers to press the button for wait and wait for it to do its thing before you press another button well there is the element of that um jeff um i'm dying laughing right now this is so me and my husband gets so annoyed at me um is this a guy gal thing well i i don't know my guess is maybe there there's guys that push the button as well but for me it's it's just like okay i'm, I'm going to wait and just because it didn't work the first time normally again once i've determined that it's it's just pushing that button gets you into all sorts of weird things. And like, like Mike says, you're absolutely right. You end up in a situation there where you, you ended up, you're, you know, you're calling Spectrum Cable to get them, um, <laughs> to get them to cover from there. Um, Jeff, I quickly go from button pushing to button punching. Um, yes, that's it. Jeff, I have two observations. Frantic button pushers have no patience and design, design, device designers need to, um, Work with and recognize that uh, you need to design things so they can stop for the havoc. Um, yeah, I think that there is an element of that. Jeff, I am a button pusher, but I am learning to patiently wait. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's um, that's it. I I think you've got that there. There, there's no question about it. It just it's one of those kind of things that uh, I think I don't know if it's men are from Mars or women are from Venus or it's just there's button pushers in the world. And there's 
there's people that don't push the button. My only advice, and this comes from somebody who knows just enough about technology to be dangerous, is generally speaking, repeatedly pounding that button is not going to solve the problem, and typically it will make it worse. Okay, here's Jim who's with me. He says, my wife is the same. She'll print a document three times before she checks the printer for paper, and then it ends up printing all three papers. Um, Jeff, my wife bought two extra airline tickets because she likes to push the buttons. Yeah, that's, that's, that, that's a thing where like you're on the computer and you've ordered the thing and they say, don't hit refresh until, you know, after this thing processes. And then you um, find the people that end up hitting refresh because they chose not to wait. Um, Jeff, button pushers need not apply to tech support jobs. It's just wait for the thing to end up doing its job. In any event, Bottom line is we worked our way through it. The iPhone watch works perfectly now. We needed tech help for that. I, through some miracle and patience, was able to get the sleep number thing working. But my only advice, and this is my friendly advice on a Friday afternoon, is when you are confronting that inevitable electronic device that isn't doing what you think it should do, and if there's a button that you think you should push, and you push it once, well, all right, and it doesn't do what you want it to do. Pushing it five or six times isn't going to necessarily change the dynamic. Um, just saying. Um, Jeff, my 83-year-old husband has been a lifelong button pusher. He's very angry by the time I get home from work to fix whatever he did. I don't let him anywhere near the computer. <laughs> well, yeah, you can kind of understand how that sort of happens, too. And, of course, now we, we all live in the modern technology world, so what are you going to do? Tim in Waukesha. Tim, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Ah, good afternoon. Hi, Tim. Uh, a few a few years back, and I watched her do it, my wife was doing our taxes online. She hit enter and couldn't wait long enough and hit it again, and it just totally screwed up our taxes for that year yeah it was yeah. a heck of a mess <laughs> yeah a heck no, of a mess to clean up yeah no no honey when you see that thing that that's turning and it says do not hit refresh or you know don't turn off your computer until it's rebooted that they're, they're telling you that for a reason <laughs> you know it's just like just let the thing work out wait that 30 seconds and then move on now thanks for calling. again i don't i'm not saying this breaks down on, on, on gender and stuff but two types of people in the world button pushers and no button pushers i will say this i am a classic example though you know uh, of even though we're we're a split family we we still love each other dearly so that all works out back with more in just a minute this is jeff wagner Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Um, it's an interesting editorial in the, the Madison Papers today, State Journal. It caught my attention because th- there's a lot of people out there who are what I call inflation deniers. That the, the and, and again, the, these are people who want to say that it's no big deal, and the fact that prices are going up radically, that we, we shouldn't worry about that, and you shouldn't hold Joe Biden responsible, and that's a whole different question. But but this idea that inflation, which really has not been a major factor for a long time, the fact that it's it's back big time, that we, we shouldn't care really, it's no big deal if prices are going up, particularly when it comes to fuel costs. Now, it's no secret, um, what last one of the things when I was watching the Rittenhouse trial and they had these these videos from the night of, of the shootings and, and one of the videos was at a gas station in Kenosha and gas was 
$2.09 a gallon. That was a year ago, August. Well, well now, the, I think the average nationwide price of gas is $3.40. If you're in places like in California, it's a lot more than that. Uh, around here, I, I think, you know, you can, I think as I was driving in, you, you, I saw it for like, Three nineteen a gallon, and and maybe you could do a dime better, maybe you do a dime worse, but it's it's over three dollars. There's no question. It's it's up dramatically from a year ago, and and there's various factors of this. But when prices go up, I guess I think that that is a, a big deal. And when you're paying more for gasoline or you're paying more for groceries, I, I think that that is something that. I think we have every right to be concerned about and, and raise uh, an issue with. For example, you know, Social Security went up, what, like 5.8%, 6.2%, some number like that, and everybody was thrilled, hey, we're getting some more money. Well, the only reason you're getting more money through Social Security is because the cost of living, you know, went up. The other thing is, is that inflation is incredibly, it's like a regressive tax. What does regressive mean? Regressive means it's a tax that impacts poor people more than it impacts wealthier people. For example, everybody, depending on what your income is, nobody likes paying more for gasoline, all right? But you need to have gasoline to drive your, to operate your cars. So you, you've got to get to work, you've got to get the kids to school, you've got to go to the grocery store, all those different things. So if you are of a higher, if, if you're wealthier, uh, you, you don't like paying a dollar more per gallon of gasoline than you did a year ago, but it, it's not like the end of, of the world. Okay, that extra, you know, $10 to fill up your tank once or twice a week, you don't like to pay that, but you're going to be able to afford it. On the other hand, if you're from, you know, like a lower income level, that, that 10 or $20 makes a big difference week after week. So that, that's why Again, inflation is very, very regressive because it hits poorer people much harder than it hits wealthier people. So anyhow, here's the headline in the um, Madison paper. Editorial. Fed up with higher gas prices? Get over it. Fuming over gas prices? Plenty of politicians are hoping to rile or appease voters. Um, uh, bowing to, and it talks about some of the politicians, bowing to pressure, President Joe Biden is releasing 50 million barrels from the nation's reserves to try to calm critics. But here's the deal. Gas prices really aren't that high, and burning fossil fuels isn't the future. Increasing, increasingly spewing carbon pollution into the air is going to cost more because of the damage it poses to our climate. And then it goes on. But the bottom line is, if you're complaining about high gas prices, get over it. We want high gas prices because high gas prices will encourage more people to go to electric vehicles. So that is a good thing. And in the interim, I don't know if you're paying her a dollar or a dollar fifty or two dollars more for gasoline. Well, just just figure out how to live with it. Our number is eight five five six one six one six twenty. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I swear, attitudes like this just make my head absolutely want to explode. There might come a time where electric vehicles make sense. There might come a time where we figure out the battery technology and we completely and totally redo the electric grid. And, and it might make, it, it might make, uh, there might be a time and undoubtedly there will. It's not going to be today. It's not going to be tomorrow. It's not going to be five years from now. I don't think it's going to be 10 years from now, but there will be a time when, you know, the, the costs 
and the ability to buy electric cars and they'll be efficient and they'll work. And that, that'll be okay. But in the interim, you know, we're going to be using the internal combustion engine. And to tell people, just get over it. If it costs more money to drive, I, I'm sorry. I, I don't think that that's the right attitude. I think people have every right to be unhappy with high gas prices and to reach a point where you're saying, okay, what is going on here? Because, again, you know, if your standard of living, even if you get a raise, if it ends up getting completely eaten up by the higher cost of inflation at the gas pumps or at the grocery store, that, that, that raise really doesn't mean anything. You're not bettering your standard of living. All you're doing is just kind of running in place. 855-616-1620. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Yeah, I mean, this whole thing with gas prices and this idea that, well, j- just get used to it, I, that, that, that's easy to, to say to people. And it's wonderful to say, well, okay, you know, we're going to have electric cars somewhere down the line. But that, that's not right now. And the bottom line is you've got a lot of people who are economically hurting. And when you end up having to pay a dollar and a half or two dollars more per gallon, we're not at that point yet, but, you know, wouldn't surprise me if we get that way, that you got to understand there's going to be impacts. Plus, when you talk about the supplies chain shortage, keep in mind how do goods get from place to place? Well, a lot of them brought by truck. And if the operators of the trucks have to pay more for gas, that means all our costs and all sorts of other goods are going to go up. So for the State Journal to say, get over it if you're upset with higher gas prices, to me is, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Oh, yeah, clueless in the extreme. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. All right. We now know that we are once again in our COVID panic because there's a new variant that's out there. It was discovered, or at least it was reported on last Thursday, and we're finding cases in the United States. My guess is that there's been a lot of cases in, in the United States. It's just hasn't we haven't known about it because we haven't tested for different variants. Typically, when it comes to COVID, you go in to have a COVID test. They don't test as a general rule to find out whether you have regular COVID or Delta or Omicron or something else, they just, you get a report back that said that you had a, a positive COVID test. But okay, so right now we are in this panic trying to deal with the latest variant, despite the fact that nobody really knows anything about the variant. I mean, nobody knows whether or not uh, the conditions are worse or less worse than Delta. We don't know, is it more transmissible? Is it less transmissible? We don't know if your prior immunity covers it or not. We don't know if getting the vaccine stops this or not. I guess it does. But so we, we just don't know any of these different things. But we're we're now once again in this kind of state of, of panic. Now, I, I've said this before, and this is coming from the perspective of somebody who is fully vaccinated and whose arm still hurts a little bit from having the booster shot a couple days ago, but I, I had no reaction to it at all. So I, I'm very pro-vaccine. I'm pro-booster. And it's one of the reasons why, at least personally, I have very little fear of COVID. I had COVID. I had a mild case. I understand in some cases it's it's, it's different. And I understand that even if you're not in that very high risk category, that would be people who are older or people who have some significant pre-existing you know, conditions. Nobody wants to get it. I, I, I appreciate that. But I, I honestly, 
having had COVID, having been fully vaccinated, having had my booster shot, it COVID is not a major concern for me. It, it's just not. Now, I understand if I've had a different sort of health situation, it, it might be different. But for the vast majority of us, if you get yourself vaccinated, you get your booster shot, and, and you're not in one of these really high-risk categories, I, I it's not going to be a controlling, at least in my opinion, for me, it's not going to be a controlling, life-altering sort of of situation because I think I've done pretty much everything I can do to responsibly, you know, take care of this. Now, obviously, if I was 25 years older and I had some significant underlying health condition, you know, you might have to take different precautions. No question about it. But I'm, I'm afraid that's what the new normal is going to be moving forward. I think people are going to just have to recognize that, that COVID is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. I don't think there's any question about it. And we're going to see spikes in COVID um, in different parts of the country at different times of the year, just like you, you have the flu season. And I understand COVID isn't the flu, but when right now, especially in certain parts of the country, you're seeing a spike in COVID cases because, again, the weather's starting to turn colder, more people are congregating together indoors, and COVID is more likely to spread indoors. Bottom line is, if you look at the numbers, if you are vaccinated, you are much less likely to get a breakthrough case of COVID, not saying it can't happen, but you are statistically much less likely and overwhelming statistically statistics show that if you do get one of those breakthrough cases, if you're fully vaccinated, you're not at all likely to have to be hospitalized or or die. And that's and so that's the argument for the vaccinations that are out there. Get it. And you're essentially not fully and totally protected, but you've done pretty much all you can do, I think, to minimize the consequences. But until we either reach herd immunity, which isn't going to happen anytime soon, or you can convince everybody to get vaccinated, and I, I just don't think that that's going to happen. I think people have made the decisions, and you can think it's a bad decision or a good decision, but, and I understand I have some of you out there who think that the government should line people up and go door-to-door and should forcibly administer vaccinations. I, I know some of you think that way. I, I don't. I think that you know people need to be allowed to make the decisions for themselves and then recognize that there are consequences for some of those decisions, and one of the big consequences is if you are not fully vaccinated, If you're not vaccinated, you have a much greater chance of getting COVID. That's the truth. And you have a much greater chance of having a bad result from COVID. So to me, that would be the argument about why people should decide to get vaccinated. But no, I don't believe that the government should line people up and force everybody to get vaccinated against their will. Sorry, I just don't agree with that. But there are there are consequences now, even for people who are fully vaccinated, because that's what a lot of the guidance is. Even if you're fully vaccinated, even if you have the boosters, you know, we think you should wear masks if you're indoors. And part of the question is, well, OK, does, is that counterproductive? Because we're telling everybody, you know, get fully vaccinated, get the booster shots, and maybe you won't need to do all those things because you have done everything reasonably to protect yourself. One of the other things that's out there, though, has to do with the idea of international travel. And this is where I want to get. The The government has just issued new rules that say that if you are coming into the United States, regardless of whether you have been vaccinated or not, and regardless of whether you are traveling from a COVID hotspot or not, if you are going to get on an international flight, you have to provide proof 
that within 24 hours of getting on that flight, you have you have a negative COVID test. You've tested negative. And it doesn't matter if you're vaccinated. doesn't matter if you've got the booster. You still have to show uh, within, again, 24 hours of the flight. Now, when we were on our river cruise in Paris a few months ago, the rule was to get back in the United States, you had to have a negative COVID test, but you had 72 hours. Now, in our case, I think uh, the flight back was on a Sunday, and it was the Friday night. They brought a pharmacist onto the ship. You know, they, they did all the testing. And so by Saturday morning, now we were leaving Sunday, by Saturday morning, everybody pretty much had, had the results. So we knew that in advance, and, and we made the arrangements. But you had 72 hours, three days, to work with this. Now you only have 24 hours. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Knowing that you're only, go- if you are coming back into the United States, so you engage in foreign travel, knowing that you're going to have to have a negative result and it's only going to be good for 24 hours, does that make you less likely to consider international travel? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, in our case, we were with a group on a ship and and the the ship made arrangements to bring, again, a pharmacist in. And so you just set up appointments, and every 10 minutes you went down and you, you got the, the nasal swab and you got the test and you gave them your email and you, you got the, the results. And they, they came in probably, oh, gosh, I had the I had the QVC thing probably in, in 12 hours. We did have a couple people, thankfully not with our group. It, it got screwed up just because there were, like, the wrong email addresses. And it did take the better part of a day or two to get the whole thing straightened out. Now, with these new rules, if you don't have a day or two, I mean, if there's any sort of problem at all, you're not getting on that plane. 855-616-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. These are the rules. Now, thankfully, the CDC and the Biden administration haven't gone as far as some people wanted them to do, which is impose other requirements, like if you come into the country, you have to quarantine for seven days. That's not a rule Yet, and I stress yes, yet. But this 24-hour requirement, does it make you less likely to travel internationally? 855-616-1620. We'll discuss in a moment. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I, you know, the, the rule has been, up until now, that if you're coming back to the United States from traveling abroad, you, you need to have proof. That you have te- doesn't matter if you've been vaccinated or not. You need to have proof that you a negative COVID test. But up until now, you, you've had 72 hours. The Biden administration has now changed it to 24 hours. And as a practical matter, I, I think candidly that as somebody who who went through this, you know, just a couple months ago, 72 hours. I, I understand. First of all, this is if you're traveling internationally, it, it's something that's that's over, hanging over your head because you're sitting there saying, well, okay, I don't think I have COVID, but what happens if I test positive? Now I'm stuck overseas for an extra week, you know, quarantined in some hotel in, in Paris, which I don't think is going to be as glamorous as people think it might be. And I'm going to miss my flights and I'm going to have to do all this. That That's that's a pressure to begin with. But now this 24 hour 
hour window instead of 72 hours. I just wonder whether it's logistically possible and whether this is going to affect people who just make a decision saying, look, I, I, 24, I don't want to have to worry about this and I don't have to worry about if I'm flying back on a Sunday, finding a place, if I've got a flight at 9 a.m. on Sunday or 9 a.m. on Monday, starting, you know, on Sunday, I'm going to travel around and try to find some place that can do a COVID test. And what happens if I get a positive test and I don't think I've had it? I don't have enough time to get retested for this. I, I, I'm just not sure how workable this is going to be and how it might cause people to just simply say, OK, I'm not going overseas for a while. Michael in Fond du Lac. Michael, you're on WTMJ. Yes. Hello. Uh, Hi. Yes. What do you think? Uh, OK, well, my situation is, uh, yes, I was my wife is from Colombia and we visit often. Her, she has some family down there. So we were there about two months ago, and we had that 72-hour rule, and uh, that was very workable. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was a bit of an inconvenience, but it was workable. But uh, this time, my wife is there right now, and I'm flying Sunday morning, and we're coming back the following Monday. And what I have to do now is, uh, well, my wife is down there seeing uh, what she can arrange, but we have to right. find a testing site or a clinic that's going to be open on Sunday. Yes. Since we only have 24 hours. So, of course, that's something that, uh, that is an inconvenience and we have to worry about. And uh, we're going to have to scramble. And uh, yeah. we may have to get up very early on Monday morning to get to a place and get tested. So Right. And then, uh, yeah. then there's always the issue about the turnaround. You know, I mean, because it, it, does, it does take... It does take a while to, you know, get, okay, so you get the test, and you get the test results, and then they end up putting it into the system and stuff. I mean, I just wonder if logistically we're prepared for for this and how much of a problem it's going to be. And in your case, Michael, I mean, obviously you're going to go regardless, but if there's people out there who are considering, like, optional international travel, I, I wonder if some people might say, you know, this is just too much of a hassle right now. We'll we'll wait and see what happens six months from now or a year from now. I'm sure that's uh, going to be the case. And uh, if I didn't already have my ticket, I would uh, certainly yeah. consider not going and waiting. Yeah. And I also I actually called up the airline and, uh, to see if I could uh, have my flight postponed or, or uh, you know, just have the right. credit uh Right. For a flight at a future date, which they're, they're not willing to work with me right now. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to go. My wife, my wife is there. I'm going to go. So, uh, well, sure. Yeah. I think a lot of people are, are not going to go. That's what I think. Yeah. No, thanks. Well, and that's it. And again, I, I mean, there's. I, you know, maybe what you're going to see is maybe you're going to see a lot of the airports that are going to set up like some of the quickie testing sort of things. And, and, and I mean, obviously, we're going to try to adapt. But, you know, his was exactly the situation that I'm thinking of when you only have the I will tell you, it was a it was a concern for people on a trip. Now, thankfully, nobody tested positive, And like I say, the, the cruise line worked this out. But I'm trying to think if it was just, you know, you and your your spouse you know, you're you're you know taking a tour of Italy or something, and you've got to have it 24 hours beforehand. And your flight is leaving at nine o'clock on a Monday morning, and then you know I don't know where you are in Italy, but you're running around trying to find a place that's going to be able to do that. 72 hours, I understand. It, it's not so much the question of having the tests; it's that short period of turnaround that I wonder how practical it's going to be. Mike in Illinois. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. How are you? Real well, thank you. What do you think? Well, I'm not a big international traveler, but I suppose, you know, if you're if you're taking a trip internationally, like you were saying, there's a lot to do uh, before you leave. And I guess, you know, a one-time hassle like that, I would go through it. But um, when did they implement this 24-hour rule? Well, it's just, um, is it, did it go into effect this week? They just, they just announced it two days ago. So maybe it goes into effect Monday. I'm not sure if it's, but they, they just rolled this out. 
Okay, so I have a friend uh, that goes to Europe once a month, and I don't even think he knows this, but it, that is going to be a major inconvenience because he always tells me, because he also has to get a test before he goes. To right. Europe. They require it there. Yep. So he's scrambling always, both ways, but now he's really going to be scrambling. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it is, you know, it, it's interesting because before we went to, and thanks for the call, Mike, uh, uh, before we went to Paris, we we had, you had to have proof of vaccination to travel overseas. Okay, no no problems. We had our vaccine cards, and you had to have proof of vaccination to get into a lot of things. Okay, no problem. We made the decision, Fran and I. We went and got tested for COVID. Like you, you didn't need to have the negative result, but we got tested like Wednesday. I think we were leaving on Saturday, just because we we both wanted. I mean, there's no guarantee that you couldn't have gotten it between Wednesday and Saturday, but we wanted to make sure that we didn't have it because the last thing you want to do is get over there and you find you test positive somewhere for COVID and then you're stuck over there. But it was, and that, but in coming back, it was 72 hours. And like I say, there was, there was a scramble. Our, our ship was, they, they had, and the week before they had used some pharmacy, and that's what they, they call the, the places over there. They had used some pharmacy and it was completely screwed up because they got wrong emails and stuff. So they switched providers. The provider we used, it, it went, it went flawlessly. Like I say, on Friday, people line up, you get the tests by, by Saturday morning, you, you had overnight, but by that, that morning, you know, you had the results and you're all good to go and you could download it and you had it on your phones and all those sort of things. And then you come back on Sunday and it, it's no issue, but I am, it's, I guess I'm thinking it kind of cuts it close if you only have that 24 hours to turn around, especially if you're trying to do things in some relatively remote spots of, of the globe where it, it's not, if you're downtown Paris, my guess is you're not going to have a problem finding a pharmacy that, that performs these tests that's open, you know, on a Sunday. But again, if you're in, some small town in Italy, and you're scheduled to, I don't know, drive back to Rome and then get on the flight, it, it might be a different sort of thing. And again, I just, one of my issues with the way we have approached COVID is I think a lot of times we come up with rules and we say, okay, this this, this is this great rule that we're going to implement, but then we never think about how we're going to enforce it, or we never think about what are the practical implications of this. And, and maybe... Maybe it's not going to be that much of a hassle for people to have only a 24-hour turnaround. I just think it's probably going to be a bigger deal than some people expect. And I do think, and I'm getting some texts from folks, I'm not trying to discourage international travel. I, it, it, there's a lot of great stuff in the world, but I'm getting texts from people who are saying, you know, we were considering going, but yeah, this is just some other worry that maybe we don't want to have to fool around with right now. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. I've always wondered if it's better to try to cure a problem as opposed to try to treat a symptom of the problem. And, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, the, in the city of Milwaukee, up until the state legislature passed a law about eight years ago, the city of Milwaukee had a residency requirement, and uh, city employees, including fire and police uh, employees, were required to live in the city. The legislature passed a state law saying municipality, and there were not many there were not many communities in the state that had that. 
but there were a handful of them. And in 2013, the legislature did away with that. As a result of that, the most recent numbers I have are from about a year ago or so. But there, there was an exodus of state employees. Let me see. The estimates are that by 2019, which was like six years after the, the law went into effect, 28% of city employees had moved out of the city. And of that, they estimated that 45% of firefighters and police officers were living outside the city. And when you think about that, that's kind of staggering. It means like one out of every two firefighters or cops made the decision that they wanted to get out of, of the city. Now, the city looks at this and says, well, this is why we need residency rules. You know, we, we, we need to, you know, we need to keep people in here. Now, I look at that and say, Maybe you should figure out what the underlying reason is. Why is it that so many city employees, almost a third, 30 percent, but almost half of the firefighters and cops, why is it that they want to get out of the city? And, and maybe once you have the answer to that, you can start figuring out, gee, what, what do we need to do? Rather than try to fence people in, maybe we can figure out what do we need to do to make, for example, the city of Milwaukee more appealing to the people that want to work as firefighters and as uh, cops or, or whatever. Now, the reason this is back in the news is in an attempt to try to get more people to agree to live in the city. For a couple a couple of years ago, the city put in a rule that if you are, for example, applying for an entry-level job as a firefighter or police officer, you get bonus points if you're going to you know, live in the, the city. So that that's kind of how they work. There's preference points, so you know you're you're more likely to be hired if they're if they're doing a rating system. If you're going to work in the city, boom, you get preference points for that. The Fire and Police Commission. Now, the Fire and Police Commission has over the years, it's just been it, it's been like a nightmare, and they've done all sorts of crazy things. That, for example, you know they violated the rights of former police chief Alfonso Morales, who sued and ended up getting you know a, a big payment. I, I think. Things have calmed down a little bit. I had an opportunity to talk to uh, the new Milwaukee police chief, Jeff Norman, the other night, and I think he's he his sense is that things have kind of calmed down, and I think that there's not going to be as much micromanaging as went on, and, and I think that's all going to be for the good. But the former Fire and Police Commission, in addition to this rule that said new hires will get preference points, they also put into effect a rule which says that for existing workers, for promotions and things of the like, you also, if you live in the city, you get preference points for that. So it's not just for new hires. We'll reward you, you know, moving forward for promotions and stuff. The fire and police unions came in and said, wait a second, that that's in violation of our contracts. That is illegal. And if you do that, we're going to sue. And um, the current iteration of the Fire and Police Commission, uh, Journal Sentinel's reporting, they've reversed that measure. I think the, the, the new folks they have on it took a look at this and they recognized that there, there wasn't a legal basis to do that. Not, not the initial entry level stuff. You can still do a preference for that. But once people get hired, when it comes to promoting people and things like that, that you, you couldn't use residency as a deciding factor. And candidly, to me, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you, you want to promote the, the best, you want to promote the brightest, you want to promote the most qualified, don't you? As opposed to simply saying, okay, this guy is less qualified or this gal is less qualified, but she's willing to live in the city of Milwaukee. So we're going to elevate him or her over somebody else just because they 
are exercising their their rights to live outside the city. So the Fire and Police Commission has backed off on on that. But there still is this issue where about one out of every two, not quite, but almost one out of every two police officers and firefighters have made the decision that they want to that they want to choose to live outside the city. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text line. Should they be allowed to do that? Now, the, the law says yes, and I think maybe Governor Evers, if he had his way and had a Democratic legislature, I think maybe he'd be inclined to try to reverse the, this change in state law that was made in 2013. But I, I think it's an interesting question. Should employees be forced to live in the city within which they work? And once again, most municipalities, even before this law, most municipalities did not have a residency requirement that you you could live anywhere you wanted. Now, candidly, a lot of people like to live as close as they can to where they work because, you know, you don't want to have long commutes or things like that. But once the city of Milwaukee was no longer able to force its employees to live within the city, you had a lot of people that decided to vote with their feet and their wallets and they moved out. Should should public employees be able to live outside of the jurisdiction where they work? Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My answer to this is is yes. And again, I think the, the larger question is rather than people complain about the fact that you've got almost one out of every two cops and firefighters who wants to live outside the city, maybe the inquiry should be, why is that? You know, what what it, what is going on? What is driving this exodus to the suburbs. And maybe if you fix that, you you don't have the problem. Is is it the public schools? Is it the tax structure? Is it the crime? I mean, what what is going on that is driving the fact that people want to move? And, and maybe rather than complaining about the fact that people are, in fact, moving, maybe you should say, okay, let's try to figure out how to make this more livable for the people that are, are working in, in the area. 855-616-1620. We discuss. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. Renee in Milwaukee. Renee, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. I enjoy uh, listening to your show. Thank you. What do you think? Uh, I think definitely it was an impact when the police and firefighters uh, were allowed to uh, le- uh, leave Milwaukee after the residency mm-hmm. requirement was no longer uh, mm-hmm. legal. It was a marked difference. Uh, I mean, the ink wasn't even dry on the paper before my neighbor moved out. I had firefighters who lived uh, on the corner of my block, <clears throat> and they moved out. They were excellent neighbors, mm-hmm. good citizens. And, yes, we have uh, a lot of other uh, problems at the root. However, it could not help if the police, uh, you know, those that want to come, unless it's, you know, required by law, uh, if they would choose to come back to the city of Milwaukee and help it, help it. This is a beautiful city. I was born and raised here. Why do we you have, think, Renee, it was that your neighbors decided to bail as quickly as they can once once those rules went out of effect? And I, I take issue. I take issue. You're very articulate. I take an issue with that term bail. Uh, well, they left. You're clearly, one of, you're clearly one of the. I'm gonna. If you let me talk, I'll you know be respectful to you, sir. But uh, you're clearly one of the biggest uh, Milwaukee bashers that I have seen in a long time. Why do you time. think you they left? Why do you think your neighbors left? Why do you think your neighbors left? Renee, why do you think your neighbors left? It could be a multitude of reasons. 
Maybe they just decided that the house that they wanted <clears throat> was outside the city of Milwaukee. Maybe mm-hmm. they were close to retirement. Sure. Maybe they did want to leave. I don't choose to, to say the word the word bail well. because I, you know that gets that gets at your motive about bringing up this subject. My point is, and I like the fact that they uh, were talking about giving the police officers the incentives uh, and either the firefighters too the incentives uh, to uh, get them to live in Milwaukee because I thought about that all along. Give them some bucks. Get give them some good bucks tickets. Uh, give them. Uh, hockey tickets, give them Brewers tickets, do something else for them to give them an incentive. You well, know, they do I, give I them preference points. Good. I mean, they give them preference points for hiring. So, okay, Renee, I, look, thank what you. Do I, I'm, get, what do they get for that? You get It's more likely to get hired. You know, you get preference points oh. for hiring. So that's the incentive if you live in the city. Renee, thanks for the perspective. I, sorry you don't like the term bail. I don't know. I, I, when, when you see... 50, almost 50%, 45% of firefighters and police officers making the decision to leave. Now, you might like the term bail, but the 50% of people making the decision to leave, if you're more comfortable with that, there, there, there's something going on there. And, and yes, you're right. Maybe some people are closer to retirement. Look, I'm a guy who I think that people should be able to, to do what they want. But with all due respect, you're You've got your head in the sand if you don't think that there is some underlying reason why all of a sudden one almost one out of every two firefighters and police officers over a period of five or six years that that they decide to leave if you prefer that as opposed to to bail but but they've they've left so it's not all because of retirements now I understand that there's all sorts of reasons that might be going on it is the school system I, I think you know if you have if you have kids. Um, there are some very fine schools in Milwaukee public school system, but in general, I think that you maybe figure, hey, I move into the suburbs, I can have access to a better school system. You can maybe get more property, uh, you know, bigger lots or things like that. Crime is certainly a factor. Let's just be honest with it. But I think we stick our heads in the sand if we figure the reason that we have so many city employees that are leaving the city as quickly as they get the chance to do it. If you don't think that there's some underlying issues that need to be dealt with, I think it's just, again, you're trying to pull the covers over your head and pretend that there's nothing to see here when, when there really is something to address. And that, that's my only point. Look, here's the reality. The legislature right now, they're not going to go back and reinstate a residency requirement. Okay, that's just flat not going to happen. So if the powers that be in Milwaukee decide that they want to try to get make it more attractive for people to live there, maybe they need to have an honest conversation and figure out why it is that the employees were leaving. And, and again, maybe it's property taxes, maybe it's these things. I understand there's all sorts of good stuff going on in Milwaukee. You've got these new entertainment venues that they're going to be building downtown. But let's face it, there's a lot of issues, significant issues in Milwaukee, starting with crime. That's one of the things that I am obsessed with. But crime, high taxes, um struggling school system, all those things, and you've got a lot of the public employees who want out. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Steve in Milwaukee. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Steve. Steve, Steve, Steve. Okay, let's take a quick break. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I was just looking at the crime statistics here. Um, Cars. This year, 
so far this year, 9,686 cars stolen in the streets of Milwaukee. That's up from 3,839 same time last year. Almost 29 cars a day are stolen. Um, homicides, year-to-date, 178. Last year it was 179. Um, we're, we're on pace and, and 100 homicides for years and years was unthinkable. And we're, we're on pace to, to have close to 200 homicides this year. Hopefully it'll settle down. But, I mean, you have all the, these quality of life issues that people need to deal with. And one of our callers said, oh, you just bash Milwaukee. Look, I grew up around here. Right, I, I grew up, I, I went to law school in downtown Milwaukee. I lived in downtown Milwaukee for a while. It breaks my heart to see what is going on in so many parts of the city. But you've got officials that are in denial. Somebody said, well, you talk about the schools, and that might be why they're moving, but it's not the fault of the city. Well, I, I'm, it, it's an overall issue. If you have a school system that you don't think, in general, is great to send your kids to, well, you're going to be looking for better areas to move your kids to, better school systems. That's just one of the realities. But you have to start fixing this different stuff. And if you don't fix this stuff, you're going to have ongoing problems. And you're going to see this type of stuff where people end up leaving. And you see that with these in public employees. Look, it's easier. There, there's no question in my mind that you have public employees. You'd rather live close to where you work. I mean, there's no question about it. But then when you start to factor in all these other things and, and you look you look at property taxes, and you look at the school systems, and you look at crime, and, and all the different factors that you have, and people make the decisions that they want to live other places. And I guess there's two ways you can approach it. One is you could say, I want to go back to the old days where we just didn't give public employees that choice to do it. And and what ended up happening as a result of that is, is you lost a lot of good public employees because you would have people who say, you know, look, I, I really have something to contribute to the city and I want to live in the city, but you know what, I... I, I, I don't want to live in this particular area because I'm worried about crime or I'm worried about taxes or I can get a better deal and a better school system if I move out to Waukesha or I move to Glendale or wherever that might be. So you'd lose a lot of employees. I'm all about trying to keep the best and the brightest people working for police department, the fire department, city hall, etc. And residency rules were hurting that. So given the fact and the reality that we're not going to have residency rules anymore, at least not for the foreseeable future, to me, what you need to do is have task forces figuring out how is it that we can make these communities more more attractive to people. And, and yes, you... I, I understand that you can put a Band-Aid on the wound by saying, okay, we're going to give you preference points and we're going to make it more likely that you get promoted. And the Fire and Police Commission has, I think, rightly abandoned that idea because they're afraid that if they get sued, they're going to lose that. But, but that's, again, that's a Band-Aid. The fundamental issue is what can you do to make a community more livable? How can you attract people so that they want to live there? How can you attract businesses so that they come in and they want to, you know, people want to invest their money and they want to start the businesses and they want to employ people? That That's that's what the underlying decision needs to be made. It's not a chicken and egg thing because once you figure out that, once you figure out how to make a community, whether it's Milwaukee or you know, Lake Geneva or whatever, Green Bay, you name it, once you figure out how you make a community desirable to live in, well, then people are going to desire to do it, and you're not going to force people to have to stay or whatever. You're going to be able to say, look, this is all we've got going for us. Look at the house you can get. Look at the school system you can send your kids to. Look, it's going to be a safe 
safe environment. You don't have to worry about people driving 100 miles an hour and running through red lights and hitting and killing people. Look, this is what we've done. You want to come here. You want to live here. That's what you need to work at. Attract people. Create a desirable situation, and people will follow. When we come back, we'll find out what John and Melissa have on their minds on Wisconsin's Afternoon News.